Hey all, and welcome to Chapterwise, where I take public domain or other authorized use works of fiction and narrate them for you one chapter at a time. If you like what you hear, please follow my channel. I try to upload new chapters three or four times a week. The Myths and Fables of Today by Samuel Adams Drake, originally copyrighted in 1900. Chapter 1. A Reckoning with Time Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. To say that superstition is one of the facts of history is only to state a truism. If that were all, we might treat the subject from a purely philosophical or historical point of view, as one of the inexplicable phenomena of an age much lower in intelligence than our own, and there leave it. But if also we must admit superstition to be a present, a living fact, influencing, if not controlling, the everyday acts of men, we have to deal with a problem as yet unsolved, if not insolvable. I know it is commonly said that such things belong to a past age, that they were the legitimate product of ignorance and have died out with the education of the masses. In other words, we know more than our ancestors did about the phenomena of nature and therefore by no means accept, as they did, good superstitious souls, the appearance of a comet blazing in the heavens or the heaving of an earthquake under our feet as events having moral significance. With the aid of electricity or steam, we perform miracles every day of our lives, such as, no doubt, would have created equal wonder and fear for the general stability of the world not many generations ago. Very true. So far as merely physical phenomena are concerned, most of us may have schooled ourselves to disunite them wholly from coming events. But as regards those things which spring from the inward consciousness of the man himself, his intuitions, his perceptions, his aspirations, his imaginative nature, which, if strong enough, is capable of creating and peopling a realm wholly outside of the little world he lives in, aye, there's the rub. Who will undertake to span the gulf stretching out a shoreless void between the revelations of science and the incomprehensible mysteries of life itself? It is upon that debatable ground that superstition finds its strongest foothold, and like the ivy clinging round the old walls defies every attempt to uproot it. As Hamlet so cogently puts it, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Superstition, we know, is much older than recorded history, and we now stand on the threshold of the 20th century. Yet, just in proportion as humanity has passed over this enormous space of time, hand in hand with progress, superstition has followed it like its shadow. That shadow has not yet passed away. There is no sort of use in denying the proneness of weak human nature to admit superstition. It is an open door through which the marvelous finds easy access. Imbibed in the cradle, it is not even buried in the grave. 
Age cannot stale nor custom wither. Those ancient fables of ghosts, giants, goblins, and brownies, told by fond mothers to children today just as they were told by mothers centuries ago. Even the innocent-looking Easter egg, which continues to enjoy such unbounded popularity with old and young, comes of an old Aryan myth, while the hanging up of one's stocking at Christmas is neither more nor less than an act of superstition originating in another myth, or, in plain English, no Santa Claus, no stocking. How much of childhood's charm in the greatest of all annual festivals the world over would remain if Santa Claus, Kris Kringle, and St. Nicholas were stripped of their traditional but wholly fictitious character? One of our popular magazines for children, Long Life To It, flourishes under the title of St. Nicholas today. And during the very latest observance of the time-honored festival, a leading journal in New England's chief city devoted considerable space in its editorial columns to an elaborate defense of that dear old myth Santa Claus, with whom, indeed, we should be very loth to part if only for the sake of old associations. It is also noticed that quite recently, stories of the wonderful brownies have enjoyed their greatest popularity. For a time, these spindle-shanked, goggle-eyed puppets could be seen in every household, in picture books, on book covers, in the newspapers, in short, everywhere. Should the children be told that there never were any such creatures as fairies or brownies, there would be an end to all the charm they possess. For, unquestionably, their only hold upon the popular mind rests upon the association with olden superstition. Otherwise, they would be only so many commonplace ragdolls. Kipling's popular jungle stories, probably more widely read than any stories of the century, give still further effect of the same idea. Now, is not the plea that these are mere harmless nothings by far the most short-sighted one that could be advanced. The critical thought to be impressed here is that about the first teaching little children receive is a lesson in superstition, and that, too, at a time when their young minds are most susceptible to lasting impressions. We have yet to hear of the mother, nursery-maid, or governess who begins the story of Cinderella or Bluebeard with the warning that it is not a real, true story, as children say. Are children of a larger growth any less receptive to the marvelous? Great oaks from little acorns grow. The seed first planted in virgin soil later bears an abundant harvest. Stage plays, operas, poetry, romances, painting, and sculpture dealing with the supernatural command quite as great a popularity today as ever. Fortune-telling, palmistry, astrology, clairvoyance, hypnotism, and the rest continue to thrive either as a means of getting a living or of innocent diversion, leaving their mark upon the inner consciousness just the same in one case as in the other. So much being undeniable, it stands with every honest inquirer after truth to look these facts in the face without blinking. Ignorance we dare not plead. 
the dictates of a sound common sense will not permit us to dismiss what we do not understand with a laugh, a shrug, or a sneer. To scold is not to answer. Superstition is not easily defined. To say that it is a disposition to believe more than is warranted by reason leaves us just as helpless as ever. For where reason is impotent, we have nothing tangible left to fall back on. There is absolutely no support on which to rest that lever. Religion and philosophy, which at first fostered superstition, long ago turned against it all the forces they possessed. Not even science may hope to overthrow what can only be reached through the inner consciousness of man, because science can have little to do with the spiritual side of man. That intangible something still eludes its grasp. If all these combined forces of civilization have so far singly failed to eradicate superstition, so much the worse for civilization. We might also refer to the efforts of some very erudite scholars to interpret modern superstition by the aid of comparative mythology. Vastly interesting, if not wholly convincing, theories have been constructed on this line. Instructive, too, is the fact that some of our most familiar nursery stories may be traced to the ancient folklore of still older peoples. Even a remote antiquity is claimed for the familiar nursery tale of Jack and Jill, while something very similar to the story of Little Red Riding Hood is found in its purity in the gruesome werewolf folklore of Germany, and Jonah's gourd of the East, we are told, probably is the original of Jack and the Beanstalk of the West. But the very fact of the survival of all these hoary superstitions, some of them going back so far that all further trace is lost, certainly furnishes food for thought, since they seemingly enjoy as great a popularity as ever. Superstition being thus shown to be as old as human history, the question naturally arises not how it may have originated in the Dark Ages, but how it has kept its hold so tenaciously throughout all the succeeding centuries, down to our own time. Most peoples, barbarians even, believed in some sort of a future state, in the principle of good and evil, and of rewards and punishments. There needs no argument, then, to account for the insatiable longing to pry into futurity and to discover its hidden mysteries. The same idea unsettled the minds of former generations, nor can it be truthfully said to have disappeared before the vaunted wisdom of this utilitarian age. Like all forbidden fruit, this may be said to be the subject of greatest anxiety to weak humankind. What then is this talisman with the aid of which we strive to penetrate the secrets of the world beyond us? Man being what he is, only a little lower than the angels, endowed with the supernatural power of calling up at will mental images of both the living and the dead, of building air castles and peopling them according to his fantasy, as well in Cathay as in Spain, of standing by the side of an absent friend on the summit of Mont Blanc, one moment among the snows, the next flitting through the garden spots of sunny Italy. If he is thus capable of transporting himself into an enchanted land, by the mere exercise of the power of his imagination, what could better serve him as a medium of communication with the unknown 
and what shall deter him from seeking to fathom its deepest mysteries? Napoleon said truly that the imagination governs the universe. Everyone has painted his own picture of heaven and hell as well as Dante or Milton, or the divine mysteries as truly as Leonardo or Murillo. Surely the imagination could go no further. Assuming this to be true, there is little need to ask why, in this enlightened age, the attempt should be made to revive vagaries already decrepit. That would much better be allowed to go out with the departed century, unhonored and unsung. Such a question could proceed only from a want of knowledge of the true facts in the case. But whether superstition is justified by the dictates of a sound common sense is not so material here as whether it actually does exist. And if so, to what extent? That is what we shall try to make clear in the succeeding pages. The inquiry grows interesting in many ways, but most of all, we think, as showing the slow stages by which the human mind has enfranchised itself from a species of slavery without its counterpart in any direction to which we may turn for help or guidance. Even science, that great leveler of popular error, limps here. Certainly, what has existed as long as human history must be accepted as a more or less active force in human affairs. We are not, therefore, dealing with futilities. Of the present status of superstition, the most that can be truthfully said is that some of its worst forms are nearly, or quite, extinct. Some are apparently on the wane, while those representing perhaps the widest extremes, the most puerile and the most vital such, for example, as relate to vapid tea-table gossip on the one hand, and to fatal presentiments on the other, continue quite as active as ever. Uncivilized beings are now supposed to be the only ones who still hold to the belief in witchcraft, although within a very few months it has been currently reported as a fact that the judge of a certain Colorado court admitted the plea of witchcraft to be set up, because, as this learned judge shrewdly argued, more than half the people there believed in it. The defendant, who stood charged with committing a murderous assault upon a woman, swore that she had bewitched him and was acquitted by the jury mainly upon his own testimony. Unquestionably modern hypnotism comes very close to solving the problem of olden witchcraft, which so baffled the wisdom, as it tormented the souls and bodies, of our ancestors. With this difference, that while witchcraft was believed to be a power to work evil coming direct from his satanic majesty himself, Hypnotism is a power or gift residing in the individual, like that of mesmerism. But if it be true that there are very few believers in witchcraft among enlightened beings today, it cannot be denied that thousands of highly civilized men and women as firmly believe in some indefinable relation between man and the spirit world as in their own existence while tens of thousands believe in such a relation between mind and mind. 
Indeed, the former class counts some very notable persons among its converts. For example, Camille Flammarion, the distinguished scientist, positively declares that he has had direct communication with hundreds of departed spirits. And the Reverend M.J. Savage, pastor of the Church of the Messiah in New York, is reported to have announced himself a convert to spiritualism to his congregation not long ago. The true explanation for all these different beliefs must be sought for, we think, deep down in the nature of man, which is much the same today in its relation to the supernatural world as it was in the days of our fathers of bigoted memory. In reality, the supernatural element exists to a greater or less degree in all of us, and no merely human agency can pretend to fix its limits. Unquestionably, then, those beliefs which have exerted so potent an influence in the past over the minds or affairs of men, which continue to exert such influence today, and, for aught we know to the contrary, may extend that influence indefinitely, are not to be whistled down the wind or kept hidden away under lock and key, especially when we reflect that the most terrible examples of the frailty of all human judgments concerning these beliefs have utterly failed to remove the groundwork upon which they rest. There still remains the sentimental side of superstition to consider. What, for example, would become of much of our best literature if all those apt and beautiful figures culled from the rich stories of ancient mythology, the very flowers of history, so to speak, were to be weeded out of it with unsparing hand? What would Greek and Roman history be with their gods and goddesses left out? With what loving and appreciative art our greatest poets have gathered up the scattered legends of the fading past. Someone has cunningly said that superstition is the poetry of life, and that of all men poets should be superstitious. As a matter of history, it is well known that our Puritan ancestors came over here filled full of the prevalent superstitions of the old country. Yet even they had waged uncompromising warfare against all such ceremonious observances as could be traced back to heathen mythology. Thus, although they cut down maypoles, they had too much reverence for the Bible to refuse to believe in witches. Writers like Mr. Hawthorne have supposed that the wild and extravagant mysteries of their savage neighbors may to some extent have become incorporated with their own beliefs. However that may be, it is certain that the Puritan fathers believed in no end of pregnant omens, also in ghosts, apparitions, and witches, as well as in a personal devil with whom, indeed, later on, they had no end of trouble. In short, if anything happened out of the common, the devil was in it. So say many today. A certain amount of odium has attached itself to the Puritan fathers of New England on this account, among unreflecting or ill-natured critics, at least, just as if upon leaving Old England those people would be expected to leave their superstitions behind them, like so much useless luggage. As a matter of fact, rank superstition was the common inheritance of all peoples of that day and generation, whether Jew or Gentile, Frenchman or Dutch, Virginian or New Englander. Of its wide prevalence in Old England, 
we find ample proof ready to our hand. For example, at Boston in Lincolnshire, Mr. Cotton being their former minister, when he was gone the bishop desired to have organs set up in the church, but the parish was unwilling to yield. But, however, the bishop prevailed to be at the cost to set them up. But they being newly up, not playing very often with them, a violent storm came in at one window and blew the organs to another window, and brake both organs and window down, and to this day the window is out of reputation, being boarded and not glazed. Still further to show the feeling prevailing in England toward superstition at the time of the settlement of this country, in the historical essay entitled With the King at Oxford, we find this anecdote. The king, Charles I, coming into the Bodleian Library on a certain day, was shown a very curious copy of Virgil. Lord Falkland persuaded his majesty to make trial of his fortune by thrusting a knife between the leaves, then opening the book at the place in which the knife was inserted. The king there read as follows. Yet let him vexed be with arms and wares of people wild, and hunted out from place to place, an outlaw still exiled. Let him go beg for help, and from his child deserved be, and death and slaughter vile of all his kindred, let him see. The narrative goes on to say that the king's majesty was much discomposed by this uncanny incident, and that Lord Falkland, in order to turn the king's thoughts away from brooding over it, proposed making the trial himself. We continue to draw irrefragable testimony to the truth of our position from the highest personages in the realm. Again, according to Wallington, Archbishop Laud, arch-persecutor of the Puritans, has this passage in his diary, that on such or such a day of the month he was made Archbishop of Canterbury, and on that day, which was a great day of honor to him, his coach and horses sunk as they came over the ferry at Lambeth in the ferry boat, and he prayed that this might be no ill omen. Our pious ancestors put a good deal of faith in so-called judgments, or direct manifestations of the divine wrath toward evil doers, as all readers of Mather's remarkable providences well know. But they were by no means alone in such beliefs. It is related of the poet Milton after he became blind that the Duke of York, later James II, asked him if he did not consider the loss of his eyesight as a judgment inflicted upon him for what he had written of the late king. In reply, Milton asked the Duke, if such afflictions were to be regarded as judgments from heaven, in what manner he would account for the fate of the late king. He, the speaker, had only lost his eye, while the king had lost his head. John Jocelyn, gentleman, an Englishman but no Puritan, who spent some time in New England, chiefly at Scarborough in Maine, published in 1672 in England, a little book under the title of New England's Rarities Discovered. Some things which Jocelyn discovered would be rarities indeed to this generation. For instance, he describes the appearance of several prodigious apparitions, all of which has a value in enabling us properly to gauge the tone and temper of popular feeling where the book was written 
and where it was published. One of his rarities is worth repeating here, if only for the pretty sentiment it embodies. He says of the twittering chimney swallows that when about to migrate, they commonly throw down the chimney, one of their young into the room below by way of gratitude, presumably in return for the hospitalities of the house. He then goes on to say, I have more than once observed that, against the ruin of a family, these birds will forsake the house and come no more. This comes from a more or less close observer who himself occupied the relation we desire to establish, namely that of a transplanted Englishman, so thoroughly grounded in old superstition that all the marvels he relates are told with an air of truth quite refreshing. An amusing instance of how far prevalent superstition can lead astray minds, usually enlightened, is soberly set forth in Governor Winthrop's celebrated history. It is a fit corollary to the organ superstition just narrated. Mr. Winthrop the Younger, one of the magistrates, having many books in a chamber where there was corn of diverse sorts, had among them one wherein the Greek Testament, the Psalter, and the Common Prayer were bound together. He found the common prayer eaten with mice, every leaf of it, and not any of the two other touched, nor any other of his books, though there were above a thousand. All these superstitious beliefs were solemnly bequeathed by the fathers to their children under the sanction of a severe penal code, together with all the accumulated traditions of their own immediate ancestors. And in some form or other, whether masquerading under some thin disguise or foolish notion, superstition has continued from that day to this. As Polonius says, "'Tis true, tis pity, and pity tis, tis true." Although a great many popular beliefs may seem puerile in the extreme, they nonetheless go to establish the fact to be kept in mind. Since I began to look into the matter, I have been most astonished at the number of very intelligent persons who take care to conform to prevailing beliefs in these things, lucky or the reverse. It is true Lord Bacon tells us that, in all superstitions, wise men follow fools. But this blunt declaration of this has undoubted reference to the schoolmen and to the monastic legends, which were such powerful aids in fostering the growth of superstition as it existed long before Bacon's time. A bone from a saintly anchorite's cave, a vial of earth from a martyr's grave. The class of persons just spoken of is, however, so keenly sensitive to ridicule that only some chance remark betrays their real mental attitude. With the unlettered, it is different. Superstition is so much more prevalent among them that less effort is made at concealment. Perhaps the many agencies at work to put it down have not had so fair a trial in the country as in the city. And yet the recent lucky box craze makes it difficult to draw the line. Be that as it may, it would hardly be an exaggeration to say that some rural communities in New England are simply honeycombed with it. Indeed, almost every insignificant happening is a sign of something or other. One result of my own observation in this field of research is that women, if not by nature more superstitious than men, hold to these old beliefs much more tenaciously than men. 
In the country, it is the woman who is ready to quarrel with you if, in some unguarded moment, you should venture to doubt the potency of her manifold signs. In the city, it is still the woman who presents her husband with some charm or other to be worn on his watch chain as a safeguard against disease, inconstancy, late hours, or other uncounted happenings of life believing, as she does, more or less implicitly in its traditional efficacy. In all that relates to marriage, too, women are usually most careful how they disregard any of the accepted dicta on a subject of so much concern to their future happiness, as will appear later on. Fifty years ago, the poet Whittier declared that there is scarcely a superstition of the past three centuries which has not, at this very time, more or less hold upon individual minds among us. The broad declaration demands less qualification today than is generally supposed. Most of the examples collected in this volume have come under my own observation. Some have been contributed by friends, many by the newspapers. If their number should prove a surprise to anybody, I can only say that mine has fully equaled their own. But let us at least be honest about it. We can conceal nothing from ourselves. Silence may be golden, but it makes no converts. That's it for today's chapter, everyone. Thanks for coming along on the ride. Whatever platform you're listening on, just know that I deeply appreciate the time you spend with me here. Please don't forget to like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time.